offer was a man who was in charge of all the outdoor maintenance for his golf club, the Boulder Point Golf Club. And he got a call one day saying that there was an errant driver on his course. So since it was a golf course, he thought it was a driver. But when he showed up to where he was called to, what he found was an Amazon delivery truck stuck in a golf cart tunnel on the cart path. So he really was an errant driver. And so when he started asking what was going on, what he found out was this driver, you know what he was doing. He was following his GPS. And his GPS took him on this golf course on a cart path, and he ran right into a tunnel designed for golf carts, and his van was too big, and so he got stuck. Now, that man ignored all kinds of warning signs, didn't he? He should have had one warning sign when he pulled into the golf course if he wasn't delivering to that address, into the parking lot. Then another warning sign when he pulled out of the parking lot onto a cart path Then he should have also had a warning sign when he was heading toward the tunnel and wondered whether he would get through it. But all along, his focus was on his GPS instead of all the warning signs. That's how many people live their lives. They live their life focused on their own strength, their own wisdom, their own trust, their own whatever they're trusting in, and they ignore all the warning signs from a sovereign God who rules his universe. And many people are ignoring those warning signs unto eternal death. You know that, right? There are warning signs all around them that they should turn from their ways and repent. And I'm wondering, even in your own life, are you following your own GPS instead of Christ? Are you seeing warning signs in your own life that you're ignoring when God is speaking to you? And you say, wait a minute, Pastor Rob, I'm a believer. I I trust in Christ for my salvation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Amen? And yet, can't we as believers follow our own GPS instead of Christ? And doesn't God warn us in loving discipline for his children? So this morning in our passage, I want you to have this in your mind. If you are here this morning without Christ, I urge you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Because you will meet Jesus today. You've already met Jesus today in our singing and in our reading and in our praying and in the celebration of the Lord's Supper the one who comes as fully God and fully man, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, is raised again on the third day, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's no other GPS that you need to have other than him. And so if you are outside of Christ today, my plea with you is to come to Christ. But we as believers will be tempted to come to a passage like Isaiah 9 and and see only judgment, and say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and ignore all the truths presented therein. And I urge you this morning not to do that. Because God never changes. And he works according to his word in the lives of his people. And I think you'll see how this all bears out for us. Isaiah chapter 9 
beginning in verse 8, we have this abrupt change from these wonderful and famous verses of the, the child who will be born, the son that is given, the government resting upon his shoulders, his name called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We move from these wonderful words that end up with the powerful, and the, it is the zeal of Yahweh of hosts that will do this. And we're lifted up in our praise. We're lifted up in our joy of what God has done in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We're lifted up as we consider what Christ has done. And then without even a breath, we turn to verse after verse after verse of judgment. And see, these judgments come on people who are ignoring the warning signs. We're going to see people in Israel in the northern kingdom ignoring the warning signs. We're going to see people in Judah, in the southern kingdom, ignoring the warning signs. In chapter 10, we're going to see Assyria ignoring the warning signs. In chapter 13 through 23, we're going to see these nations and eight others included ignoring the warning signs. And then even in chapter 24, we are going to see the whole earth standing in judgment if they refuse to see the signs and repent and turn back to God. So this is the beginning of a stretch for us that has meaning for us as New Covenant believers. So don't be tempted to dismiss it. Let's stand together as I read our text. And as I read, I want you to look for this repeated phrase, for all this anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. That little phrase marks out four sections of our text this morning, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 9. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut, but we will put cedars in their place. But Yahweh raises the adversaries of Razin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of Yahweh of hosts. So Yahweh cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thicket of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the land is scorched. 
And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they are hungry. They still hungry. They devour on the left, but they are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So that little phrase at the end of each one of those sections is what marks off our our sections of this text. And in these verses, we are shown four descriptions revealing the cause and effect of God's righteous judgment against a sinful people. Four descriptions revealing the cause and effect of God's righteous judgment against a sinful people. The first description Because of their pride and arrogance, Yahweh will send their enemies to devour them. Look at verse 8. The Lord, Adonai, the the strong, powerful sovereign, has sent a word against Jacob. And the ESV says it will fall on Israel and all the people will know. But all of those are a perfect verb tense. I think they should be past tense think they should be, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it fell on Israel and all the people knew. Because remember, in, in, the, in the scheme of Isaiah, where we're seeing things happen in Isaiah, the, the, these kingdoms from the north have already come and invaded Israel. They've all, already even made it into Judah. They just couldn't get all the way to Jerusalem. So they're already experiencing what God is doing. And it's leading up to, which is why I'm guessing the translators in some versions make, will fall on Israel and the people will know, make it future because their total destruction in 722 hasn't happened yet. This is sometime in the few years before that. But the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. And we see the word Jacob and Israel and Samaria. We're talking about the northern kingdom in the majority of our text today. When we get to chapter 10, verse 1, the shift changes to the southern kingdom. So we're speaking about the northern kingdom. It's, and and there's, there's the Lord's judgment on many things in this passage. And the judgment is hard for us to hear. There's some strong ways that the Lord will act against the sin of his people. So he sent a word. What is that word? Is, is the word what we've already learned in Isaiah? Is the word of all of Isaiah's prophecy and Hosea and Amos as well who write during the same time? I think it's all the prophets. He sent a word. And in the Old Testament, this word for word, dabar, doesn't always mean a, a spoken word. Sometimes it's, it's used to describe an event. 
But it's not the word that's important. It's where the word comes from that's important. And since it's God's word, it will not come back void. It will do everything it accomplishes, and it, it requires the people to bow before it. The people in the northern kingdom, in the southern kingdom, in Assyria, and all the other nations that we're going to see in the next several chapters, everyone should bow before the Lord. We live in a world today that there are some people who say that the government, we don't have any right to make the government Christian. Well, we're not making the government Christian. We're holding the government responsible for what God says the government should be. And we don't take the government and put it outside the sovereign reign of God. God rules over everything. He created it and he rules over it. Now, if he's chosen to have wicked leaders in place, he's done that in the past. If the Lord tarries, he'll do that in the future. But that's according to his plan. That's according to his judgments and his grace and his mercy. And so we see the Lord has sent word against them. It has fallen on Israel and all the people knew. And who are all the people? Look in, the, in verse 9, right in the middle. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, all referring to the northern kingdom, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. So they are prideful and they are arrogant in their heart. So everything about them is they're lifting themselves up. They're, they're thinking what they think and what they say and what they do is the most important and they are sure of it and they're out front with their sin. And this is the way they're described by God himself, who, they, that these people say in pride and in arrogance of heart. Now listen to what they say. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. So the bricks have fallen. What does that refer to? Is that God's judgment of, of already that they've experienced where their, some of their cities and towns have been destroyed? Is that the earthquake in Amos that's mentioned? I think that happens too early, but there's a picture that God has already given them judgment where they've lost their homes. And that is covenant curses right there, isn't it? In Deuteronomy 28, I'll give you the exact verse, Deuteronomy 20, 28 verse 30, we're told that if you are disobedient, God says to his people, you will build houses and not live in them. And that's exactly what's happened here. But instead of receiving that as a sign we need to repent. We need to turn from our ways because the Lord is being faithful to the covenant and enacting the curses because of our disobedience. They say, we'll just rebuild them with stronger stone. We'll just build them better than they were as if they could somehow overcome the Lord when it's in his mercy that only the bricks have fallen so far. In Amos chapter 5, verse 11, the houses of hewn stone are condemned. Because Not because of the blessings of having a house of hewn stone, but because to get those houses, those rich houses, they fleeced the poor. And that's what we're leading into in this whole section. But it also uses another picture. The sycamores have been cut down. Maybe your version says fig trees. I, I think that's not right. It's sycamores. Trees that grew in Israel tall. And, and it could be talking about devastation of the forests, but I think it also could be just another way of saying that the bricks have fallen around the house, so have the beams. The main beams that have held the roof up and held all the structure up, they've fallen. And so they're saying, that's okay. We'll, we will rebuild it with a better wood. The cedars of Lebanon, the best wood of the time. 
the stronger wood, the straighter wood, the taller trees. We'll just rebuild all the better. You can see their pride and arrogance. God has acted, but we are not condescending to listen to him. We're saying that this is not the word of the Lord. And if it is, we reject it because we in our pride and arrogance can do everything again our way. But, verse 11 says, in light of that, in the face of that, Yahweh raises the adversaries of Razin. Now, remember who Razin is. Razin is the king of Syria. And remember, in this whole setting, Syria and the northern kingdom are trying to get the southern kingdom to join them in alliance, in an alliance against the superpower of the day, Assyria. And, and the, the king is making bad decisions. He goes to the king of Assyria for his help instead of to his god, and whatever stage of that battle and that, and that story we are in, this is the king, of Assyria, the king of Syria, and Yahweh raises up the adversaries of Syria, which is Assyria. Assyria are the adversaries here. But not only Assyria, the enemies of Syria, but he stirs up his enemies, the Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with open mouth. So that's a very descriptive word is saying they're going to gobble up everything. Their hunger cannot be satisfied. And this is the work of the Lord toward his people, the northern kingdom, by raising up his enemies against them just as he said he would do if they were disobedience. And then our phrase, for all this, all their arrogance of heart and their pride, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now, when the Bible says that God's hand is stretched out, it could be stretched out in mercy because his hand is stretched out when he delivers his people from captivity to Egypt. That's the phrase that's used. But it's also, it's judgment against his people because his hand is his power. It's the power with which he works. And so here we have this picture of his hand is stretched out in judgment. I don't think there's any hint here of mercy This is all stretched out in judgment. For the sins of the people, for all this, his anger is not turned away. And mark that word. It's not turned. It's not turned in the other direction. For his hand is stretched out still. And if his anger is not turned, his hand is stretched out in judgment against them. It's continuing. Why? Look at verse 13. The people did not turn. The people want God's anger and wrath to turn away from them. They need to turn. They need to repent. And this is the way this word is used over and over in the scriptures to to identify repentance, turning from one direction and going to another. So turning from their own version of the GPS in whom they trust, their own pride, their own arrogance, their own abilities, and turning back to God. And if they do that, then God will turn. And that's what God has said he would do. In his own character, he left it room to do, right? He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. If a people, if he has pronounced judgment on a person or a nation, then if they repent, he has the right within his merciful character to return, to turn away from the judgment that he sent them and give them mercy. Because his judgment is intended to lead people to repentance. We live in this world now with that same, don't we? His mercy, his long-suffering. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he comes against sin. But there are times that he delays that judgment so that men and women would repent and come to him and receive his mercy. 
And that's all why we see the judgment continuing, but it's not yet final, is it? Well, the second description begins right here in verse 13. Because they are godless evildoers, Yahweh will cut them off from head to tail and from their leaders to their orphans. Remember, we're looking at cause and effect. What happens to, to move God toward his, his um, actions? Verse 13, the people did not turn, they did not repent to him who struck them. So it is God who's doing the destruction it is God who's doing the judgment. He's using the Assyrians. He's using the Syrians. He's, he's using the Philistines. He's using all these nations who he will also call godly in the next, ungodly in the next chapter. He used ungodly nations to come against his ungodly nation. But it's the Lord who has struck them. They did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of Sabaoth. Remember, in chapter 8, we saw the, who they, many of them were inquiring in verse 19. And when they say to you, that is to Isaiah, the encouragement for Isaiah to continue on, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And the answer to the first question is, yes, they should inquire of their God. And the second question, no, they shouldn't go anywhere else. And so his judgment is continuing because there is no repentance. And they're not inquiring of Yahweh's Sabbath oath. They're inquiring of their own strength. They're inquiring of their own leaders. So, see the cause and effect right there in verse 14. So, Yahweh cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed, in one day. His movement is quick. It's swift. No one can stand against Yahweh. People who think they stand against Yahweh are actually standing against his mercy because it was him who decided who not, to not totally destroy or totally exact punishment. And so we have these two descriptions saying the same thing. Yahweh cut off that, that uh, covenantal language, right? Cut off because of disobedience. Cut off from Israel, head and tail, palm branch and reed. So the head and tail is about to be explained to us. The palm branch and reed is not. But it doesn't matter because they're saying the same thing. It's, it's an idiom to show us completion, totality, right? Palm branch and reed. So the top and the bottom, when you remove that plant. But he's also saying head and tail. And in verse 15, he explains those. The elder and honored man is the head. So there's the political leaders, right? The honored man, it literally has to do with the man who's lifted up with regard to their face, the regard to their countenance. So people are lifting them up because they're seeing them as, as worthy of that honor. And the elder being the, the elders who would, yes, sit at the gate, but also the ones who are in leadership. The elder and honored man is the head and... The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. So there's the religious realm. Now, prophets should not teach lies, should they? Prophets are only prophets if they speak the word of the Lord, and it comes true to affirm that it was the, the word of the Lord. So we have the political leaders, we have the religious leaders, all involved in something, which we'll find out in just a minute. So God is giving this whole, it's, it's a total sweep of sin, and it's a total sweep of judgment, and it's quick within one day. In other words, you cannot thwart the work of the Lord. Verse 14 or 16 goes a little bit further for us, doesn't it? For, so the, the prophets who teach lies, 
the prophet who teaches, teaches lies is the tale. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. So there's a seemingly intentional leading astray, right? Because they're speaking truth. They're not doing the right things as leaders. We're going to see that developed even more. They're not doing the right things as leaders. And God is saying, I'm starting with the leaders. I'm starting with the leaders, and I'm saying that these people are guiding the people in the political realm, in the religious realm. They are guiding the people, but they're guiding them astray. And the people who are guided by them are swallowed up. So the sinfulness of the leader is causing the people to be swallowed up. And we're tempted to say, so they're not responsible for that, right? Because the leaders are the ones who are leading astray. But we're going to find out in a minute, they are just as responsible. They are just as responsible to know that the honored men are not worth honor and the prophets are teaching lies and falsehoods. In 2020, to keep a theme we'll tie throughout this whole sermon, there was a German performance artist by the name of Simon Weckert who orchestrated a performance piece called Google Maps Hacks. And what he did was he put 99 cell phones in a wagon and then took that wagon and walked down a deserted street in Berlin. And his goal was to show how he could manipulate Google Maps. Because if you use Google Maps at all, if there are 99 cars within a block going very slow, what happens to that road? It lights up red, right? To say there's a traffic jam on that street. And so his intent was to deceive Google Maps. There was no one on the street at all, but he had 99 cell phones in this wagon, and so Google Maps thought there's 99 vehicles going at walking pace on this street, and they lit the thing up red as if there was a traffic jam. It was an intent to deceive, and it worked. Now, this performance artist, he, what his goal was, was to show, make some grand statement about how um, gadgets and electronics have invaded our lives. But do you see how easy it is to lead people astray and to do it intentionally? Because we're leading out of our selfishness, because we're leading out of our arrogance. But also we might do it even without intending because we're not tied to the word. When I was in the Navy band many years ago, we would do arrivals at different places, formal arrivals for dignitaries. We'd do White House arrivals and Pentagon arrivals. And the Pentagon arrivals sometimes were on the outside, where a right by a helicopter pad, that a helicopter would come in and dignitary would come out. And if we were the band that day, we would play honors and the guard would be there. And they would just get off the helicopter, walk by us as if we didn't matter at all. We'd usually been standing there for a couple hours already before they get there. And in a couple of minutes, they're by us and we leave. Well, sometimes it was in the center of the Pentagon, in the big courtyard area that we'd have that arrival. And it was more formal. Heads of state would get this kind of an arrival ceremony. And if you've never walked in the Pentagon, it's a massive building with turns and hallways and corners and different ways that you can move. And so when, the, when this was finished... We were the band of the day, and as we marched off, our drum major marched us off and marched us right down a hallway to a dead end. It was the wrong turn. He didn't realize it was the wrong turn. We were supposed to be taking up one of the pathways, one of the corridors that led us right outside to where our buses were, but it was the wrong way, and all of a sudden, we get the sign for halt, and we all stopped, and we're facing a wall. Our drum major led us astray, didn't he? 
It definitely wasn't intentional. I can guarantee you that. I don't know what happened to him. Maybe his head rolled. Maybe it didn't. But all of a sudden, we had to turn around and walk back out and go out the right corridor. There is a way to lead people astray without intending it if we trust in our own thinking, if we trust in our own wisdom, if we trust in our own arrogance. Well, whichever was being intended here, it doesn't matter because the judgment has come Those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, since this is happening, cause and effect, since this is happening, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Do you hear how sweeping? Doesn't that make us uncomfortable? The widows and the orphans and the young men, the most vulnerable in society, the ones that the prophets consistently say Israel is being judged for because they are not taking care of those people, the ones that we are constantly told that they're our responsibility to take care of the most vulnerable in society. And yet the Bible says very clearly in verse 17, the Lord does not rejoice over the young men and he has no compassion on, the, on the, their fatherless and widows because everyone is godless. Everyone is an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. That's how the sin of the nation has progressed. The sin of the nation has progressed so much that if there was any righteousness in the nation, it could not be seen because of the unrighteousness. And God is no respecter of persons because if the people would be led astray, they were not reading their word. If the people would be led astray like that, they were not responding as they should to false leaders and false teachers. We see this carried all the way through into the New Testament, don't we? Constant warnings against false teachers, and it's the people who are supposed to recognize them. The charges to the elders in Acts 20, that we are to protect the flock from wolves that rise rise up from without the flock and from within the flock. But then the whole body is charged to do the same thing. Why? Because we have the word of God. We are to see the signs. And when someone teaches against the word of God, we're to stand up against that so we're not led astray. This is the picture of our world that we live in today. How many people are being led astray today with falsehoods about activities and thought processes that God calls sin and the leaders are calling righteous? The leaders are calling good. This is the way the church stands up against that. We do it with joy. We do it with with loving respect for people because we are to love our enemies, but we stand up against it. And so in the government, as well as in the church, as well as in the church at large, there are people in the church at large who are not standing up there. They're trying to hold hands with the world and with the scriptures and make that work together. God would call that godless behavior. God would call that sinful behavior and, and their speech being full of folly. Because what God says is sin, is sin. So what's going on in in 8th century Israel is going on today. Are we going to see the signs? Are we as a people going to see the signs? Are we going to see the signs of God's judgment as his judgment? Because all of the the sexual aberrance that's going on now, the, 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 the wild things that are called good, God calls evil, that is the judgment. It, it's not that we're acting this way so God might judge us. We're acting that way because God has judged us as a nation. 
And that's where we stand in the middle of it because we see the signs. Our GPS is Christ, not the wisdom of the world. And so we're standing. We stand firm. But our weapon is the gospel, isn't it? Our weapon, our weapon is truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand against error by teaching and preaching truth, and we bring the gospel in the midst of the darkness because it is the fact that Christ saves sinners. That's the message that we have. So whatever is going on in the world, we stand with the gospel in the center of it. And we are the ones that are the men of the, the sons of Issachar who could read the times correctly and know what Israel should do. That's our role as a church. We read the culture around us and read it correctly, and we do what God says. We are salt and light in the middle of that craziness. Well, they weren't doing that in 8th century Israel. So for all this, the end of verse 17, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still stretched out. Well, the third description of cause and effect begins in verse 18. Because their, wickedness burn, because their wickedness burns like an out-of-control fire, they will become fuel for Yahweh's wrath and devour each other. Look at verse 18. Why is his anger not turned away and his hand stretched out still? Well, because of what he has just said, but also that little word for in verse 18 helps us see for... Wickedness burns like a fire and consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. So this is a, a picture of what sin does, right? This is the ungodliness, the, the, the evil that's done by the evildoers, the mouths are speaking folly. This is sinfulness that burns like a fire and consumes like, like dried up briars and thorns. And remember, we've already seen that in, in Isaiah, the briars and thorns, this picture of judgment that that reminds us of, and we will see it in the future. Remember back in the vineyard song earlier where God expects to see fruitful vineyard, and he says, since I don't, I'm going to turn you into briars and thorns and let everything be overrun. That was the result of sin as well. And this is the result of sin. And it's as if a fire just going through a dried up field or a dried up pile of briars and thorns and thickets in a forest that are all dried up and it rolls upward in a column of smoke. It's even the picture of their arrogance still looking upward with their head held high in pride. That's the picture that's before us. So all of that ungodliness is now talked about as a fire that is unquenchable, but there is a stronger fire, isn't it? Look at verse 19. Through the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the Lord or the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. No one will spare another. So God's fire of judgment is even stronger than the fire of sin. And so he uses his own wrath, and now it's, it's described as a fire that overcomes everything and cannot be stopped, and the people are the kindling. So he uses the people's sinful actions to increase their judgment by letting them go. And how bad is it? They slice meat on the right, verse 20, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Now, whether that's literal or figurative, I don't know, but either way, it's horrible, isn't it? Even the closest tribes, the, the sons of Joseph, 
Manasseh and Ephraim devouring each other, and together they are against the southern kingdom. So God is using the sin of his people that's out of control and burning everything in sight. And then he says, that's my wrath. And I have let it go until you devour each other. For all his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Repentance is what's required here, isn't it? If the people repents, if the people will repent and turn, God turns. His anger will be, will be taken away because he promises that he will show mercy on those that repent and come back to him. There was a man who teaches at Notre Dame, a political scientist who wrote a book in 2018 called Why Liberalism Failed. And the point of using this book as an illustration is he makes some arguments in the book that a liberal democracy has betrayed its promises. It was supposed to foster equality, but it has led to great inequality and a new aristocracy. It was supposed to give the average people control over government, but average people feel alienated from government. It was supposed to foster liberty, but it creates a degraded popular culture in which consumers become a slave to their own appetites. Sounds like Israel in the 8th century, doesn't it? Their leaders have failed, Everything that they should have been doing turned upside down. Their world's turned upside down, so they devour each other because of their own sinful desires. He quotes one person, is saying, one student of his is saying this, because we view humanity and thus its institutions as corrupt and selfish, the only person we can rely upon is ourselves. The only way we can avoid failure, being let down and ultimately succumbing to the chaotic world around us, therefore, is to have the financial means to rely upon only ourselves. That's exactly the wrong way to look at what's going on in the culture. Well, as things get worse around us, it would be exactly the wrong way is to turn in and pick ourselves up from our boot, by our bootstraps and say, we can do this better. We can accomplish this better. We turn ourselves to Christ. And if we turn to Christ, we're not turning into our own strengths, our own wisdom, our, our own knowledge, our own abilities. We're turning to Christ in our weaknesses, and then he is strong in those weaknesses. When we move, we've already had Judah brought in here in verse 21. Together, Ephraim and Manasseh are against Judah. And in chapter 10, verse 1, we move in to Judah as we see the fourth cause, description of cause and effect. Because they pursue oppression and injustice, God will leave them nowhere to turn on the day of punishment. So we return to a woe, which we had earlier a list of woes. So that idea that this is, this is, you should be undone by this and you will be undone. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. So we're back to those leaders again, right? They're, they're making sinful laws that oppress people in sinful ways. And he says, woe to them. So God will, will not settle for this injustice Verse 2, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. So you see the injustice against the poor, against the people who are the, the, the most uh, vulnerable in our society? God is coming against them because the leaders are not, they're not just doing it, but they're writing laws that are sinful. And then in their court system, they're, they're in, um, 
adjudicating those laws in sinful ways. Both of those things are happening so that their coffers, they can build new stone houses on the back of the poor, just like Amos tells us. And this, this is the judgment against Judah. And we know that because look at verse 3. Remember, his audience is the southern kingdom, not the northern kingdom. So he turns and he makes it personal. It's another one of those examples of, do you think everybody in the southern kingdom will be looking at the northern kingdom and everything Isaiah was saying about them or God was saying about them through Isaiah and say, yes, that's right. They should have judgment against them. They should. They have been disobedient to God. And so he would have been stirring them up and they weren't feeling their own guilt. And then he turns the tables. Now he talks to them, you, not them in the north, but you. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? That is that foreign nation God will raise up to bring and destroy you. To whom will you flee for help? You've been turning to your own self. You've been turning to your own leaders. You've been led astray by their sinfulness, their iniquitous laws, their bad judgments, their false teaching. And where will you leave your wealth? All this wealth that you're going to pile up because you're ignoring my signs of judgment and you're not repenting. What are you going to do with that on the day of judgment? So it's a direct threat to them. You must turn away from this because you cannot stand on that day. And remember, we've talked about already that all these pictures of localized judgment are all just a nod toward the final judgment. Every one of them are pictures of how a righteous God deals with unrighteous people. And it may not be the final judgment, but it's all a picture, a precursor to the final judgment. And on that day, there will be no more judgments that come afterward. It will be the final judgment. And what will you do, God asked the people. And he asked us today, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? You've had Christ before you all this time. You've had all my signs of judgment around you and you have still not repented. Who will you trust then? And that's the question before us. Why? For all this, ang- for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. We see his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still even to this day. Because John chapter 3 tells us that if, if you are rejecting the son, that Jesus comes and gives his life, that all would believe in him would have eternal life, they wouldn't perish but have eternal life. That same passage tells us that you are currently under judgment if you reject the son. Right now, today, if you are a person who says this Jesus stuff isn't for me, God is just a killjoy. He wants my life to be miserable. He doesn't want me to have any fun in the world. Or you just say, you know what? I've got things under control. I'm doing things on my own. I've got things under control. Things are going well for me. I mean, you talk about curses. Well, my life is blessed. I'm getting promoted. I've got great kids. I live in a great house. Why why do I need to add Jesus to that? If you're one of those people, there's coming a day of judgment. And that strength in your own power, in your own wisdom, in your own money, in your own retirement fund, in your own abilities, that doesn't mean anything on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, you have one thing to offer, and that's perfection. 
You either need to be perfect in your life, which you are not even if you think you are, or you better have one as your advocate who was perfect. See, there's only one way. There's only one way to answer the question, what are you going to do on that day? You will either fall in the judgment and spend eternity separated from God, eternally punished, or you will stand in the judgment because one has gone before you who has lived perfectly and you are in him. And he is your advocate. And you are, you are ever, all of his blessings are yours. And that is Christ. That is, that is the Messiah that we celebrated, Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. That's the only answer. It is the only way anyone stands. And so I hold it out before you today, the challenge. What will you do? What will you do on the day of punishment? To whom will you flee for help? What will you do with your wealth then? Flee today. There's only one help. And the only help on the day of judgment is Jesus Christ. Flee to him. Repent and turn and his outstretched arm And his wrath will pull away for the love of his son who took that wrath already on the cross. But what about the rest of us? What about us? If we're already in Christ, do we really have to look for signs? Do we have to look for signs of judgment? Well, I will tell you, first of all, we're not without the need to repent for all that's going on in our world today. We have that same need. We have need to repent where we have acquiesced to things where we should have stood. Where we have agreed to things or kept our mouth shut where God would have had us give the gospel or stand and say true things even if it cost us a job, even if it cost us a friendship. We're still part of a nation who has people now standing on the street corners demanding the right to kill babies in the womb. We're part of that nation. So first of all, it's repentance for us because we are the people who can repent. God has granted us the ability to repent of those actions and turn to him and those sins are forgiven on the cross because there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. But we're also looking for signs. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're done in Isaiah. And we won't go any further than Hebrews 12. See how artfully I avoided saying in closing? (laughs) Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's talking about Jesus In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, that was true of the the Hebrews. They, They were not losing their life yet. It's true of us in this congregation. We've not resisted sin to the point of of losing our lives. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So this is us. This is those who profess faith in Christ. And we're now sons and daughters of the king because of the work of Christ. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So it's when God disciplines us, he is disciplining, disciplining us for a purpose that we may share in his holiness. Now, if we don't recognize the signs around us, then we miss out the fact that God is showing us where we are regarding sin and not Christ. Where we are doing things that God would not have us do. Even as believers, he's showing us. You may be involved in sin where you're now walking in the consequences, and the consequences are the signs. And are you going to be driving your truck into the cart tunnel? Or are you going to see the signs and repent? Because the purpose of that discipline for a believer is so we share in his holiness. It's so we, so we walk in a righteous way. So that we don't have the consequences of sin. So that our, our testimony is not shattered. Our testimony of the, the love of God in Christ held out to a dying world is not shattered because we're regarding so much sin that they go, well, you're no different than me. God does this. And we, if we're not seeing the signs, we're going to walk into that sin and drive into those tunnels with a car instead of the cart because we are tied up in our own visions. We're not living in the Word and submitting to the Spirit. So there may not be eternal punishment for those of us who are in Christ, but there's a discipline that happens that is loving from our Father so that we are sanctified and conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. So the message of Isaiah 9 and 10 is for us as believers as well. There's a small island in, the, in, northern, Can in northern Canada. Iglulik is the name of the island. And in the wintertime, the temperatures hover about 20 degrees below zero. Thick sheets of ice cover the surrounding waters, and the sun is rarely seen. And yet despite those conditions... The Inuit hunters have for some three or 4,000 years have hunted without any means except the ability to address drifting snow because of the wind patterns, to address, to use the sun, to use the natural creation around them. And they navigate large swaths of changing terrain. They can go out to hunt, and the wind blows, and there's no path left, and yet they always know where they're going. And it's been taught generation to generation how to navigate in such a harsh environment. Well, now, guess what the younger hunters are doing? GPS. And they're navigating with these GPS systems, which are great until it's not. It's great until it doesn't work. It's great until the, the, the device fails. It's great until it has you drive into the tunnel on a cart path and into the Amazon truck. But you know what's happening? 
This generation is losing the ability to navigate like they have for thousands of years. They're losing the ability to look at their land and understand it well enough to get around that they don't need anything except what God has provided in front of them. Now, this is the picture of Christians who go astray, isn't it? We get our own strength and our own ways, and we forget the practice of the Word. We forget the practice of reading and meditating upon the Word and memorizing it and crucifying our sin and pursuing Christ. We forget all of that because we get caught up in our world. We get caught up in our world, and we lose our focus off Christ. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves that we're not reacting as Christians. We're not thinking about the sustenance of Christ. When things go bad, we're not thinking about the, 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 the short-lived nature of the world we live in and the eternal perfections of Christ who has redeemed us. And so we don't want to pick up anything else at any time, even if it works for a season. We want to keep our faith in Christ. Know the word. See and obey the signs. Repent and trust in Christ alone. That's what the call was to the northern kingdom. It's what the call is to the southern kingdom before their judgments, and they did not ignore, they did not um, see and process the signs correctly. It's the call to you if you are outside of Christ today, and it's the call to you if you are one of God's children. See the signs, know the word, repent of sin, understand his discipline towards you, and trust in Christ. That's as simple and as difficult as our life is. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the word and its truth. We are grateful that you can speak to and about a group of people centuries ago. And your word speaks to us because you breathed it all out. And so we are a people, Father, who constantly are in need of reminding of your mercy. For even as we realize the areas that you are disciplining us lovingly as a father to draw us back into holiness, even as we realize those, we need to be reminded of your mercy because it's not the law that saves us. It is Christ. It is not turning and doing good that says, oh, now we're safe. Your word reveals Christ. And so we are constantly in need of your mercy and your strength. So provide that for us. Father, if we need wisdom, let us not turn to the world. Let us turn to you who promises to give wisdom to all of us and give it liberally. If the world is, is overwhelming us and taking away our joy, help us to turn back to Christ. For your word tells us that he gives us his peace and his joy. And it's not peace like the world gives. It's not joy like the world gives. It's different because it comes from you and you are our God, our creator, our redeemer. So Lord, help us to be that people who keeps our eyes focused on you through the study of your word. When we sin against you, we repent for you are leading us into holiness without which none of us will see you. So we are thankful for the perfect life of your son Jesus and the righteousness that is credited to our account because of his work. Raise us up as your army, Father, in the midst of this darkness to do what you would have us do, for you still have people to save in the midst of this crazy world. And we desire to be ones to, that you use to bring your gospel to those hurting and broken people. So do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.